Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Greg Store, And I'm Kimberly Robinson. On Wednesday, the justices heard a blockbuster elections case, Moore versus Harper, which legal experts say could change federal elections nationwide. At issue are federal congressional districts in North Carolina, and more specifically, who has the power to control them? The state legislature alone, or do state courts and other officials have a role? The case is premised on the independent state legislature theory and the text of the election clause in the U.S. Constitution, which says, quote, the times, place, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. And the key word there is legislature. Proponents of the theory focus on that term and say that only a state's elective representative bodies can set the federal voting rules. And so we're talking about things like setting early voting standards, voter ID requirements, and in the case here, voting districts. They say state courts can't impose limits on the state legislature's power. Now, critics of the theory say that The term legislature is broader than just a specific institution and includes all of the ways that a state might enact its laws. They point out that state courts and state constitutions have always acted as a check on unbridled legislative power. We talked about Moore versus Harper in our last sneak peek episode, but that is briefly what the case is about. And because the arguments were three hours long, we've got a lot to cover. So let's jump right in. So joining us today to talk about the marathon arguments in this case is Derek Moeller, a law professor at the University of Iowa, who, very good for our purposes, focuses on election law and particularly the role of states in the administration of federal elections. That works out pretty well uh, for what we're going to talk about. And let's go to our interview with Derek. Derek, we all got to uh, listen to three hours of arguments yesterday. What out of that constituted your biggest takeaway? What, what what do you think is likely to happen with this case after listening to all that? I was going to say my biggest takeaway was that 90 minutes doesn't mean 90 minutes anymore, but uh, <laughs> that's a different issue. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the, the court definitely seemed to be grappling, or at least the center of the court, if you will, grappling with some kind of a very narrow ground um, for federal courts to review what the state courts are doing and essentially provide some outer boundary to what that looks like. Uh, you know, early on, when the petitioner's argument came up for the legislature, it was a very broad, you know, some have described maximalist view that the legislature essentially can enact election laws and federal elections uh, unconstrained by any substantive limits in the state constitution. But as argument wore on, it was obvious that more of the justices were attracted to uh, a narrower vision of sometimes the court just goes too far. State courts are not functioning like courts. Um, and I was a little surprised, although not very, to see all sort of three of former and current solicitors general uh, sort of concede there's an outer bound to this. There's some role for the federal courts to play. And that concession, I think, is going to be the the groundwork for some sort of a consensus opinion at the end of the day. And what will that mean for the North Carolina Supreme Court's decision here? Do you have any sense about um, what's going to happen to the maps in this particular case? Is this an instance of where the state court went too far? really hard. Uh, again, part yeah. of it depends on the test or part of it depends on how they apply the test. Because 
the, the test that, for instance, Don Verrilli suggested, you know, that there is no fair and substantial basis in law for what the lower court did. And there are some additional provisions put on it. And, and several members of the court also sort of playfully noted, well, depending on the adjectives and adverbs we put in place, right, those are the kinds of constraints we're thinking about. But then Justice Alito pushed back, and he's, he's a very sharp questioner on the court, pushed back to say, well, can anything flunk your test? What does that look like? And and Varelia responds, well, you know, if it just looks like they're not basing their decision in law, but just in fairness. And Justice Alito later comes back and says, that looks a lot like what this decision is. If I read it, it's not one provision of the Constitution, several provisions. And so I think that, that on the ground, right, this case is going to be the edge case. Um, if there is a doctrine that the court recognizes, at least for the indefinite future, uh, this is kind of the outer bounds uh, of what state courts can do. And, and essentially telling state courts, listen, what you're doing here looks like you're kind of making it up. Um, now, Varelli pushed back multiple times to say, oh, the petitioner sort of conceded that you know they, they were doing ordinary law and the petitioners came back and rebuttal and said, no, 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 we went another bite at that. So there's all those sorts of things. But it might mean, right, in this very narrow case that either send it back, in which case there's different interesting mootness questions that arise, um, or make a finding and say, no, I think we're on the very edge, but the North Carolina-led uh, Supreme Court was doing what Supreme Courts do. Or say, no, I mean, this is the outlier. There must be some limit. We think the North Carolina Supreme Court just went too far. And if there are five justices for that, maybe, maybe that's what they conclude. Hmm. Um, but leaves open a lot of questions potentially for the future. So I was glad to hear you say you were surprised that all three of the former SGs took that position because I was surprised and I was wondering if I was just misunderstanding something going into it. Why do you think they made that, let's call it a concession, that there was a, a place where the federal courts could intervene in, in extreme cases? And what are the implications of that? Is there a danger that they are letting the camel's nose get under the tent and, uh, you know, once they've done that, who knows what the consequences will be? Yeah, again, I, it was hard enough that was a fallback position uh, we heard a lot about fallback positions in oral argument, but the, the fallback seemed to be, you know, that there's no judicial review because this is a pure question of state law. But at the same time, once you're invoking a provision of the federal constitution, um, you can say, like, well, I mean, at some point, the federal courts have to be able to step in, right? So imagine the state Supreme Court just declares we are enacting a map. And this is what we're going to do. And we're going to ignore what the legislature does or, the, or whatever it might be, just in defiance of state law. Now, this came out a little bit, and, and you've seen some of the academic commentary starting to seize on it, say, well, there might be due process problems with that. You know, it's a due process violation if your state court just enacts arbitrary and capricious rules. Um, but even Neil Kochel sort of says at oral argument, no, no, I mean, I think there is an elections issue here, and maybe we think about this within the elections clause. And so there's some wonky federal courts precedent, uh, sometimes known as the adequate and independent state doctrine to say, well, sometimes federal courts can review state law questions of state Supreme Courts when they sort of have this lurking federal issue in the background, and we're just asking whether or not they stray too far. But maybe one other point is, these litigants seem to realize in 20 years, Chief Justice Rehnquist's opinion in Bush versus Gore 
which makes this move of sometimes the state courts go too far and the federal courts need to step in in election cases. That opinion has just gained traction, not only among mm-hmm. members of the court, including Justice Kavanaugh, who helped litigate it, but uh, gained traction among conservatives and gained traction among now maybe a majority of the court. So sort of trying to put that opinion in its place and say, it's okay, even if you use that, we still win as the outlier, as the egregious case. But you're right, Greg, nose under the cam- or camel's nose under the tent is a, is a big issue at the end of the day. So we sort of just jumped right into uh, the thick of it here, but I wanted to back up a little bit, um, talk about the different versions of the independent state legislature theory and um, sort of what support it got among the justices. So we've talked in a previous episode about sort of this maximalist version. Did you see um, any support for that on the court? Yeah, the only sort of explicit support, and that is, the maximalist version is sort of summarized succinctly is no substantive constraints on the legislature. Uh, and so there was some divide on the court and struggles about what's procedural versus substantive. But I think substantive constraints, you can only ger- draw districts this way or that, whatever it might be, those kinds of limits would be off limits uh, for state courts to police. Uh, the only member of the court who seemed at all attracted to that view was Justice Gorsuch, uh, who sort of came to the defense and pointed out, listen, uh, mostly because Justices Jackson and Sotomayor and Kagan came out of the gates really concerned about the view and saying, oh, this is going to leave a lot of things unchecked. And Justice Gorsuch coming back and saying, well, I mean, there are these other checks. There's the federal constitution. There's federal statutes. There's Congress that can step in. There's political checks. So he seemed to be the most inclined to defend a version of that. But uh, that was about it. You know, Justice Thomas had some questions lingering here and there. There were some 10th Amendment things that floated around. Justice Alito, uh, you know, seemed to be testing more the outer bounds rather than kind of a full-throated version of it. So so there was that. Um, And then there was a narrower version, which the petitioner said was their fallback, to say, well, there needed to be some clear statement rule, right? Some clear provision of law that would be sufficiently manageable for the state courts to do. But again, I think other members of the court were concerned about the line drawing problem or where this even comes out of the text of the elections clause. If the, if the elections clause just says legislature, um, what is the what is the boundary to say like, oh, that this is sufficiently clear and definite and that one was not. And so, you know, Chief Justice Roberts, even Justice Alito did not seem as attracted to that view either. So that's why I think there was so much discussion later in the argument about a much narrower view and again, sort of attaching to the Bush v. Gore kinds of arguments. Sticking with the the topic of the Chief Justice, he probably more than any other justice really seemed to not like the North Carolina Supreme Court decision on it in, in its substance. Um, you know, seemed skeptical of the idea that a such a general pr- provision as a free elections uh, provision in the Constitution could lead a court to start looking at uh, whatever they were, efficiency ratios or something something like <laughs> that. It, you know, a very detailed decision uh, l- looking into what constitutes gerrymandering. What do you, where do you see him coming out in this case, given that he's also the guy who wrote the, the, the Rucho decision, which said the federal constitution, there's not a claim for partisan gerrymandering. Right. So uh, Rucho did get some attention. Justice Kagan was very specific about that, especially for the petitioners. Um, 
And I think in Rucho, they they cite several things and the petitioners do a, a nice job of clearing away and saying, well, some of these deal with state gerrymandering, not federal. Some of them are statutes like in Iowa, you know, they're statutory ones rather than constitutional provisions. So the legislature can always change it. Um, the one thing that didn't come up was the fact that Florida has enacted a state constitutional amendment. It's very explicit about prohibiting partisan gerrymandering. And it's a provision that Chief Justice Roberts favorably cites in the Rucho opinion, right? So that's a very specific provision. Now, again, this gets to that sort of spe specificity, clear statement rule, because otherwise, you know, in dissent in Rucho, Justice Kagan says, well, we've got Florida, we've also got Pennsylvania. Um, and Chief Justice Roberts doesn't want to talk about Pennsylvania in Rucho. Why? Because Pennsylvania is doing something similar to North Carolina, although a little bit different. It's taking its free and fair elections clause and saying, aha, in here, we've got an anti-partisan gerrymandering opinion. And North Carolina actually takes it a step farther. It says, well, we've got the free and fair elections clause. We've got the assembly clause. We've got the equal protection clause. <laughs> we've got like a kind of a potpourri of clauses that we're now going to use and say, aha, here's our problem. So um, I think Chief Justice Roberts is disturbed by that, <laughs> this notion that it's this freewheeling and again, lack of manageability, lack of direction um, for the, the the courts. And again, not something that's as definitively put into law. If you're looking at the North Carolina Constitution, these provisions trace back to 1776. And suddenly in 2021, aha, we've got a anti-partisan gerrymandering clause. So I think that's the part that concerns him. But again, how are you going to write that test? How are you going to step in and say, ah, oh, this is definite enough and this is not? And you saw Justice Alito occasionally was pressing on some of the manageability to say a, a clause that talks about fairness. But people get nervous about that, too. And and, and the respondents didn't concede that that was uh, insufficiently manageable. Uh, again, mm -hmm. Baker versus Carr, these cases from the United States Supreme Court said, well, the Equal Protection Clause is sufficiently manageable. We can figure that out. So uh, so I think there's going to be some struggle if you're going to say what that outer bound is, you know, what that's going to look like in a case like this. I think the one thing that we all learned was that if you're going to ask the Supreme Court to do any kind of math, they're going to reject your test. Um. <laughs> yeah, I did see. I think it was Robert said one of his most Roberts quotes ever, an efficiency gap of whatever. I believe yeah. <laughs> is one of his lines that he used. <laughs> Please don't ask them to do math. That's a losing argument in the Supreme Court. Um, one thing I did want to talk about is the court um, has made clear that history is going to be really important um, in constitutional questions. And so it was really no surprise that there was a lot of talk about history. Probably also not a surprise that the parties view that history very differently. Um, wondering how, what you make of that um, and sort of the parties competing views of how history plays out in this case. Yeah, I mean, the history is a mixed bag in many respects. I mean, it, it's it's hard to distill what these 18th century concepts meant, uh, especially as we see changes to election administration over the years. Um, and on the one hand, the respondents, uh, you know, the the state, you know, defending the Supreme Court's decision, state Supreme Court decisions, they have a lot of good evidence to say, listen, there were all these constitutional provisions at the founding relating to federal elections. There was all this guidance given to elections. 
There was a notion of judicial review at the founding. There was a notion of the gubernatorial involvement in the process, including the veto. And again, this gets to the process substance distinction. But th there were all these things that were known to the framers and sort of in the water and baked in. And so the notion that later on we would sort of strip those things away is difficult to say, well, we've got all this stuff floating around. How can we say this is impermissible? Um, on the flip side, as the petitioners would point out, many of those provisions relate to qualifications, not to time, place, manner. They relate to state elections. It's not clear they apply to federal elections. It's not clear that state courts were engaging in judicial review of political questions, including election provisions, even if they're baked into the state constitution. Um, so there's a lot of points the other way to suggest not. And then even things like the gubernatorial veto, there was this, you know, citations, the early dictionaries to say, yes, the, the governor is doing a legislative function here and sort of functions as a part of the legislature when vetoing bills. So, uh, so there's a lot of sort of this fighting about history and, and what that looks like. And then again, a lot of fighting about precedent because you have cases going back a hundred years to mm -hmm. cases like Hildebrandt, Smiley versus Holmes to say the referendum, the veto are okay. Up until again, Justice Kagan wanted to hammer this, you know, the Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission case 2015, the Rucho versus Common Cause case of 2019 to say, these are recent cases where we've approved the people lodging in the constitution <laughs> Uh, anti-gerrymandering provisions. So how can you show up here and say something different? Um, so it's a, th there's a lot of history there. At, at the end though, there was some interesting um, fights. I don't know about fights, but at least thoughts. And again, in a way that I haven't thought about, and this is always the danger maybe of a lot of briefing until you get to oral arguments, how oh, that's interesting. <laughs> um, to ask, well, fair and substantial basis, like what would that look like? what would it look like to go too far as a state Supreme Court? And then the answer was, well, 1776, or what it looked like at the founding, right? So uh, there might be a whole new round of uh, like what, how far was too far when it goes to partisan gerrymandering at the founding? How far was too far when it comes to state court involvement? So there might be like another layer of historical questions that we're going to peel out only after this decision is rendered. But uh, but something I'm I'm definitely interested in seeing what the court does. So let, let, let me uh, go in a somewhat different direction and, and kind of ask you about the for people who have been worried about the independent state legislature theory, kind of the, the, the ultimate worry is this idea that uh, a legislature might be able to overturn the results of a presidential election in, in that state. Do you are those worries overblown? And was there were there things in this argument that gave any insight as to whether uh, that's even gonna, you know, come into the court's decision. Yeah, I mean, uh, they're not just overblown; they're they're false, Greg. <laughs> and I want to be like as crystal clear as possible. I mean, I think there are people who floated these around in 2020, but essentially as a pretextual reason, right? You can't throw out presidential election results. Congress has fixed the day of holding elections. You can't choose them on a later date. There are due process problems with throwing out results. There are equal protection problems with throwing out results. There's there's a host of other things. So the notion that the legislature can act in some respects unchecked from state authorities doesn't extend to ignoring federal statutes and federal constitutional law. Um, now, there were other like maximalist concerns, right, that could states ignore 
absentee voting provisions, voter ID provisions, um, you know, early in-person voting provisions, all kinds of you know, whatever laws you might have in place under the state constitution or state constitutional review. That was the maximalist view that people worried about sowing chaos. Um, I think, again, sort of as I suggested earlier with, with Kimberly, I, I think there was very little appetite on the court for anything close to a maximalist view. Um, now, that doesn't mean, so I'll put on the worrier's hat now for a moment, right? <laughs> that even a, even a narrow view, right? This gets the camel's nose under the tent. Mm. If it hasn't slammed the door shut on challenging state court decisions, it leaves open potential interminable litigation in the future about what that looks like, right? And if you're saying there's a chance, <laughs> And if you're saying that there's this opportunity, right? Like, does it just inv invite litigation all the time? And courts, state courts second guessing themselves, petitions before the United States Supreme Court, dissents from emergency, you know, requests before the Supreme Court. So I think there is a risk of even a narrow decision, if it's not sufficiently tailored, of leaving open a lot of questions of litigation in the future. But I certainly did not see anything that invites a dramatic upheaval of our election system uh, in the near future. Well, that's not going to sell any newspapers. <laughs> that's a, I'm in a different business than you all, so you tell me. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. That was really helpful in breaking down uh, the three hours of arguments. Some of us had to sit in the courtroom for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> for that monstrosity. <laughs> uh, well, I appreciate it. It's always great to be here. And uh, yeah, look forward to the next uh, big Supreme Court case on election law in the near future, which I'm sure is coming. You know, Greg, one thing that surprised me about the um, about the argument was all this discussion about Bush versus Gore. I'm pretty sure that there was a line in Bush versus Gore which said that it was only good for that case and not good for cases 22 years later. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe that line had an expiration date on it that, that, that I missed, that uh, it's only good for this case until 22 years later when it becomes the case that could change the course of American democracy. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And, and I agree with Derek. I was... It's really really striking how much impact that concurring opinion for three justices by William Rehnquist couldn't command a majority of the court. That could have been the argument that sealed the election for George W. Bush, but he couldn't get five justices on it. And uh, that has become the opinion that everybody just assumes is kind of the baseline going forward, that federal courts do have at least some small role here. Yeah, I think it's just the latest example of how far the current Supreme Court has shifted um, in, a, in a relatively short period of time. Well, the justices will be on break until January 9th, and we're going to take a little break, too. We'll be back at the end of the year. Until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. An individual's race should not be used to help him or harm him in his life's endeavors. A pair of lawsuits has made its way to the Supreme Court, and the decision could dramatically change just who gets into which college. Bloom is effectively using the Asian community as pawns. Every lawsuit needs a villain. To mask an anti-Black and anti-Latino agenda. Does this demoralize me? No, it doesn't demoralize me. This season on Uncommon Law, we'll explore the arguments and the people driving this latest battle over affirmative action. Can the Constitution be used to remedy society's ills? I'm the only person in class who has to raise my hand and say, okay, well, actually, here's how this affects people that look like me. 
Does the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause prohibit all discrimination based on race? You let somebody in because of their race, you're keeping somebody else out because of their race. There might have been two or three Latinos, including me. And so somehow that's too much, somehow that goes too far. It's hard not to take that very personally. Coming October 25th, part one of a three-part series on affirmative action. What's being decided is whether black and brown people are going to be excluded in significant numbers. Only on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.